Hello folks, welcome back to the episode 3 of Views from the 405. Uh, a surprising amount has happened in the interim, but first let's introduce ourselves. Has a surprising amount happened? Well, here to find out, as much as you are, listener, is me, Rob Hakimian. And I'm Kieran Devlin, and I guess I'm here to annotate what has happened in the, in the interim. Of about three weeks? Three weeks as well? Two, yeah, three weeks since we recorded, two weeks since the it came out yeah okay okay so uh yeah and um i think i feel like a fair a fair amount's happened um the thing i'm most hyped about is the announcement of a new wolf parade album and a new wolf parade single and a new wolf parade tour which um is a lot of wolf parade and it's very up my street did the announcement make you cry 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 with happiness it did and i like that but more of that more of that to come listener for those who don't get it, the new fourth Wolf Parade album, their first for what seven years, yeah, is called Cry Cry Cry, and ends their hi- well. Actually, no, they ended their hiatus last year with that four track EP. Did you like that? Um, I was feeling different. Uh, I feel like the the new single Happy Valley is Valley Boy, Valley Boy, Happy Valley. What the hell is that? <laughs> um, is a as a as a fair improvement on it's it. It's a market improvement on any on anything that was on that EP. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, so, and we're all very excited for it. Um, what, what, what? Just very briefly, what, why, why do you like Wolf Parade so much? They just, um, when they came around, they really, in, um, in, inhabited that kind of rabble rousing indie rock sound that I really enjoyed when I was in my first years of uni, listening to Apologies to Queen Mary and uh, at Mount Zuma a lot. And just, I don't know, it felt like adventurous. It felt like, oh, this is rock music, but not like straightforward rock music. This has got spiky edges and, uh, you know, death or glory type uh, emotions. So, you know, I just kind of latched onto it. And, you know, the the having two songwriters in a band is always a positive. And they've got two great ones in Spencer uh, Krug and uh, Daniel Beckner. Uh, Beckner, Bockner, I don't know. Uh, yeah, and it's, they're just a great band. And see them live if you can. I know you haven't yet, but you're going to. I am going to. Uh, for me, it was an, a similar situation, but with Expo '96, where I was. Um, that came out around the time I was getting really, really into music around the time of like the the suburbs and other bands and uh, other albums like that, and it just like blew me away. It was so urgent, so like hard, but also really clever and original in a lot of what they were doing. And it was wasn't just like really hard rocking. They used instruments very intricately and very interestingly. And the, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, so yeah, we're absolutely hyped for that. October sixth, Sub Pop. We'll be talking about it around that time. As long as we haven't had, um, you know, creative differences and split up the podcast by then. <laughs> always always a, a possibility with uh, this, this. Yeah, but you'll hear more around October 6th when that album comes out. What else has been going on? Uh, less less happy news was the death of Chester Bennington, the Lincoln Park frontman and, well, legend in a lot of ways. Um, did, you, did, you did it hit you in any way? Yeah, I mean, especially coming on the heels of uh, Soundgarden singer Chris Cornell passing away. Uh, they were both big b- bands. I mean, talking about um, Audio Slave, not Soundgarden, but Audio Slave and Linkin Park Hybrid Theory were two of, you know, very formative albums for me as an early teenager. And 
yeah, I never really followed Linkin Park that far after maybe their second album. But, you know, to this day, they're the kind of band you can put on one of those songs from Hybrid Theory, like Paper Cut or In The End or uh, Closer To The Edge. And you just remember every word. And um, they were talking about it on uh, a little bit as tangential to the new metal discussion on uh, Celebration Rock podcast mm, yeah. and talking about how they, they seem to have more, you know, they had more artifice than a lot of those bands who were just brash and in your face and wanted to offend. Uh, it felt like Chester especially really wanted to get something across in his vocals. And uh, I don't know, reading a lot of things have been posted about him in the last week or so since his passing and um articles from the time and articles from now digging up information and it seems like he had a lot of troubles in his life which is probably why he led he was led to do this but um yeah and he you really got that feeling listening to hybrid theory that there was an internal struggle that he was trying to vocalize uh and that connected even though i was only like 13 or whatever at the time the emotion was still tangible to me how about you? Um, I think that bypassed me. I had quite a strange musical development in that I never had my emo phase as right now. I went from like new romantics in eighties via my dad up until the age of fourteen, fifteen, where I dove straight into indie rock and like nineties and classic rock. Um, so I it sort of bypassed me by. Um, what was it is that I like I knew quite a lot of people who were massively into it and going looking back in retrospective it's very easily to be dismissive of Linkin Park and New Metal from the, the critics have enjoyed doing that they, it's a heavily pastiched genre um, but they were an outlet for thousands of people they, are not, they weren't for me at that time I, if, if I listened to them properly now I'd probably get them really into them but um, as, as I just say like, it's, what they've offered is is something very few bands can offer on a very global, international, very accessible scale. Um, I guess uh, similar to bands like My Chemical Romance, like <clears throat> music I've never been that into, but I do appreciate that as a, as a source of catharsis and therapy, they have been monumentally helpful. And in conjunction with the Chris Cornell uh, tragedy, hopefully some good comes out of this and people start to become more and more conscious around mental health and appreciative of their friends who say they're suffering from uh, depression or lethargy or loneliness and realise how how significant these issues are. Um, they're, they're more and more music and more and more pop culture is becoming cognizant of it. And if anything is to come of this, hopefully it just seals the lid and people realise how important it is to look after your mental health and the friends and family's mental health. Yeah, and not to dismiss someone just because of what it might appear to be happy life on the surface, like Chester Bennington, singer of a world-famous band, married with six kids, and uh, you'd think that that adds up to a happiness inside, but obviously not. So, yeah, I mean, just hopefully it raises, raises the consciousness for everyone.
Well, we're moving on to more uh, generalised news. Um, the Mercury shortlist was announced. Oh, generalised. I like what you did there. Um, so, and I, I put a, a Twitter poll on there but just because there seemed to be a very widespread like debate between um, is is there any relevancy to the Mercury Prize anymore? And but the fact is they do provide a platform for people, and though like they keep getting parodied, that 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 both the money and the platform is significant. And as well, but then again, as 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 that platform there because to enter as Goldflake paint uh, Tom pointed out. You need is it a grand to enter in the first place? Which I don't know that. Which you're not you're not, not a lot of British DIY bands are going to have a grand to spare to enter a prize. Um, Why do they have to pay to enter? That doesn't make any sense. I I, I don't get it. Um, but, um, this is the only revered uh, award that is granted that is gifted to artists of somewhat underground nature. You know, there's no. At least in film, they have the Academy Awards when all the big films get recognised. But then there's also all the, you know, independent uh, film festival awards that uh, do recognise less, uh, less big budget films. And there's no such thing in in music, and especially in Britain, all we have is the Brits or the Mercury's. So the Mercury's is a lot closer to, you know, my taste and away from the mainstream. But it's still not. I don't know. Judging by this year's choices which include ed sheeran and alt j which is two of the most the two of the most unoriginal picks ever and leaving off things like blank mass uh, slow dive idols as well idols really bugged me yeah um but then there's some things on there Mm. as long as ed sheeran or alt j doesn't win or blossoms i if sampha won that would be cool yeah loyal karna which would be my pick yeah loyal karna would be cool as well so I don't know. There's yeah. no point con- continuing to complain about the Mercury's. No. At least they do highlight some acts. Yeah. That there's no other kind of award that's doing anything. I mean, I don't even know how you establish a kind of an award. Like no one cares about the NME awards. The closest thing in <laughs> in uh, our realm of music is end of year polls. You know, yeah. Yeah. getting in the top ten on a Pitchfork or a or a a resident advisor or something like that yeah. is a big deal so that's kind of the closest thing we've got to yeah. something meaningful but they don't get any money out of those no but hopefully but they do provide platforms and and um, like DIY blogs like Goldfully Peak and I sent to an extent more sort of um, sort of uh, highbrow sites like The Quietest are quite good in nitpicking these sort of records. I mean, they gave the album of the year so far to that Richard Dawson record. Oh yeah, that would have been another great pick for the Mercury. Yeah, yeah. so like, I think that they, they, they are, these end of year polls, so many people find their um, niche afterwards. Perhaps like a good example from my perspective was Julian Baker. I, I, I probably have rambled on about how much I adore her work on here before, but I didn't know of her until uh, Goldfully Paint at the end of 2015 so I think I, it's come around the end of the year that's when things really start to pick up on and um, I guess that's our job as writers and critics is to find find these albums and promote them as much as the possible the problem is them. then we all kind of post our lists at the same time and it becomes a complete cluster mess of mm. uh, information about yeah. who's his best and what what yeah. if we could all just agree to stagger our polls <laughs> monthly yeah. then it would be great
Well, one quite I think is quite interesting. I guess maybe the relationship between Drowned in Sound and Six Music are quite good for that in terms yeah. of collaborating quite well. So maybe more um, similar collaborations between medias, between writing and radio, or writing and television, but could be a, a progressive way forward. But whether there's going to be that, considering the state of and. Um, writing and how much little money there's in the music writing whether that actually could be achievable is a different question altogether well all we can do is hope and promote where we can true um so we'll probably discuss the winner of the mercury when it comes around briefly but again we'll probably just be stepping over ourselves um and and the other thing that uh, happened since we're gone is very important yes the what the most fun pop song of the summer arguably um Maybe not, maybe not the best, but certainly the one I've extrapolated most enjoyment from. Yeah, I think it's the best that I've heard, but you know, I don't have my head in that realm. We're talking about "Boys" by Charlie XCX, which is Did not you? only uh, a brilliantly uh, uh, infectious Game Boy Beats kind of sub three minute pop gem, but it now has an amazing video to go with it. Yeah. Uh, do you want to explain the video? Um. Yeah, so largely the video is is over fifty different guys from like vast, huge different backgrounds from people famous people. Yeah, different um, different levels of famous. Yeah, so you've got Diplo, uh, Mac DeMarco, Diplo playing with puppies. This is all done on like pink backgrounds. Or yeah. with, uh, there's a lot of accents of pink. This uh, this yeah. video was directed by Charlie XCX herself. So they've got Diplo playing yeah. with puppies. They've got Jack Antonoff. Lifting weights, they've got yeah. uh, Riz Ahmed playing with a teddy bear, yeah. uh, Mac DeMarco playing his guitar topless. Matt's all thrown in there. you got Ezra Rostin, Koenig. Yeah, Ezra Koenig, and uh, uh, he's brushing his teeth with yeah. Mark Ronson. Um, uh, what else is good? Uh, um, Joe Jonas eating pancakes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, these are all like three-second clips, mm. but if you go to... Pitchforks, the pitch. Uh, Michelle Kim has done an article about called uh, "We Need to Talk About This." Ch- mm. Very Charlie XCX's very important boys video, and she's made <laughs> gifts. I don't know if she made them, but she's got gifts of all the individual people that show up in the video, so you can uh, identify them all. But then you don't get to hear the song as you no. do it. So I would say no. watch the video, watch the video, and then reveal the answers afterwards. Yeah. Re- what? Now watch, watch Michelle's uh, read Michelle's piece. Yeah, she's um, made some interesting points. Uh, yeah, oh, that, that that is look as you say, like the, the, the song is good because it's it's very ostensibly minimalistic and straightforward, quite uh, in line with another one of the best um, pop songs of the summer in my mind, Selena Gomez's "Bad Liar," which I haven't heard. Is 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 generally very good. It sort of it changes the pitch on the the bass line from Psycho Killer, and it's this. That's largely the production, and the rest is just our voice and our lyrics. It's really fun. Um, interestingly, I, I'm not sure if any of you are also uh, listeners to Unbreak My Chart, the the uh, Fraser McAlpine and Laura Snape's uh, pop podcast um, for the charts. But she, a few months ago, she suggested there would be a belated song of the summer contender, which she heard, and she revealed it was Boys as well. And you can, you can see where she's coming from. <laughs> you can see why she's one of the best pop critics around. Definitely. Um, uh, I think it's quite um, Michelle's piece. Um, just very briefly, um, we th- we were didn't know whether to discuss this. Whether our favorite articles in the news, but I thought the news may be a more appropriate thing. But um, she, I think it's really salient about how the whole legitimizing of fangirling and the destigmatizing of female sexuality, because in a way, it's like is having its cake and eating it with the like the 
the objectifying of men but it's not done in like a inverse sinister way in a creepy way it's quite innocent and playful but it is still sexualizing them and i feel that's a really it's a really positive empowering message um i don't know i know obviously as you know straight white guy straight guys it may be a bit um disingenuous to sort of make too much of a point of it but i just feel it's a really positive idea in it yeah i didn't think it was like emasculating them i thought it was just kind of really funny showing off their more sensitive sides or sensitive in inverted commas or just yeah um doing things that are generally considered to be uh stereotypically female fantasy like men male fantasies of females like pillow fights and etc but doing it in such a nice and cute way and having a laugh yeah it didn't feel exploitative at all mm. i'm sorry that i missed your party i wish i had a better excuse like i had to trash the hotel lobby but i was busy thinking about boys And uh, shall we move on to the favourite albums, the big albums from the past three weeks? Yeah, let's do it. So, first off, Japanese Breakfast's Soft Sounds from Another Planet. Yes, this album's amazing. Second album by Michelle Zorner is Japanese Breakfast. Yep. Um, from the opening notes, it's just like a huge leap forwards in terms of production. Um the opening set track is Diving Woman. It's what, six minutes long, and it just really takes you... It's really a patient, much more patient than anything she's done on previously as Japanese Breakfast and uh, is a real deep dive. I mean, it's called Diving Woman, but you really feel like you're being submerged into this kind of world that she's created with her production. And there's a lot of sci-fi elements throughout this album, but there's a lot more going on as well. You spoke to her, so mm. what does she tell you? Um, so it actually it changed and evolved over time there's there had various incarnations so it started originally as a sci-fi concert album and there's still traces of that splice throughout it um as probably most probably on machinist um and uh, the title track where it gets quite celestial and quite grandiose and um so the, the the science fiction element was she she suggested was to do with her idea that her grief is not just personal it's universal it's ubiquitous she met so many people who talked to her about her her previous album um psycho pump about which was a very direct addressing of her mother's death um in the very immediate aftermath and so many people came up to her and expressed how important and significant that record was for them in coping with their own parents and their own friends and family dying um and she realized the the power of music and also the power of grief as being a shared item and um it's it's i i feel like it's, it's such a stunning idea and but it's it's expressed with such eloquence and poise but also like the songwriting craft is is very very pointed and sure that she produced it entirely with one other guy who unfortunately name escapes me but so it's entirely her work and she played all the instruments herself as well along with this this guy and it's, um you know the, the, there's there's like saxophone there's um, all these various elements that come into it, and it's so at the time it sounds very new romantics, very eighties. Other times, you know, um, <clears throat> it's boyish is very much a Roy Orbison um, like cover song, and she's very unabashed about saying that like it's another soul type thing. 
But it's not a Roy Orbison song. I mean, it's her own song. Well, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, it's it's it's. I can't imagine Roy Orbison singing lines like "I can't get you off my mind." I can't get you off in general. <laughs> and that that's actually a good point because that I feel that lyric. I put, made the point in my review. I I um I get I reviewed it for the four or five and get um give it an eight eight point five. Um, that lyric really sums up what is so splendid about her her um lyrical ability because it's both achingly sad. And there's such like um, loneliness in it, but it's also just funny and brash. Which there's and it's the same with like the song Roadhead, you know, is is just a it's just a euphemism about like um, spitting gas. Uh, it's, and there's there's a lot of humour here, but so much is about the idea of love, like love lost and love gained. There's so and the, the the record as it goes on becomes more and more about her relationship with her partner and how redeeming and redemptive um, it is for her. But we're always maintaining that musical craft, so I just thought it's a very meaningful sound record, and yeah, it's it's been a real highlight of my year. And we should just say that it's just even if you don't uh, get involved with all the themes running through, it is just chock full of really well produced, shiny pop songs. I mean, we've got to mention "Body Is a Blade" as one of the mm. best guitar pop songs yeah. of the year. Um, what else is on there? Uh, boyish is another one. Yeah, one, one of my favourites. Roy Orbison, the one that we mentioned. Uh, Machinist, yeah. Diving Woman. Yeah. I can't think of any other names right now. Soft Sounds. But yeah, it's an amazing album from Japanese Breakfast. Mm. So the next album we're going to talk about is one that was something of a surprise because the the cycle in leading up to it was very short. Mm. And I'm talking about Tyler, the creator's Flower Boy or Scumfuck Flower Boy, as it was reportedly called for a while. But I think that they've just decided to call it Flower Boy now. A, a real a real shame for. for I like it just being called Flower yeah, Boy. I, I, to I be honest. Well. Um, yeah. So he dropped Nine Eleven, Mister Lonely, and which is one song, two, a two-part one song, and he dropped Who That Boy uh, a few weeks ago and then announced that his new album would be out a couple of weeks later, and here it is. And it comes across as the most fully realized, easily the most mature and most well-rounded Tyler, the Creator album yet. I hadn't, I'd kind of grown weary of him, especially after Cherry Bomb, which was such an exhausting listen. It was just a barrage of sounds and... Uh, screaming and you know i don't i don't remember it that well you're a much bigger odd future fan than i am what did you think of um cherry bomb cherry bomb i disliked like i i um it was uh, encapsulated all negative press around tyler um it was brash there was nothing interesting about it i was like i'm trying to overdo himself um yeah, I, I generally think it's a bad album, not just a boring one. It's just like a three or four for me. Um, but this is this is like a complete inverse of it. I gen- I well, um, what 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 do you think of this album first of all? Because I'm quite I'm quite curious to think about. I feel like we're echoing a lot of what we said about Jay Z's 444, where mm. he 
on 444 he's done an about face he's got a lot more personal and introspective and that's exactly what you could say about flower boy um with tyler though it's interesting because it seems like he's breaking down a whole persona that he's been building up for whatever five five plus years that he's been on the scene um I mean, the most obvious thing to point out is his apparent coming out of the closet. Coming out of the mm. closet, I sound so old. Uh, but, yeah, say, uh, making admitting, uh, admitting that he's kissed boys and uh, he's only been looking for girls. To, I haven't written down any specific quotes. But, yeah, he and the overall theme of the album is, you know, enjoy what you do, enjoy right now, today. Um, and it's you do get that resident kind of sweetness out of it when you get to the end of it you know from the cover which is tyler standing in a in a field of um flowers uh which just uh speaks to the joy that's within the album and enjoying life in general and that comes out of this album which is unbelievable from a tyler the creator album mm-hmm. because one of the things especially when he, he wrote his first lp was called bastards the second one goblin <laughs> I mean, these albums were very in-your-face, controversial, trying to be controversial albums, and Flower Boy does none of that. It just wants to be who it is. It wants Tyler. Tyler seems to want to show people who he really is on this one, uh, which is really exciting and Mm. works really well. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's the best thing he's he's ever done, except for maybe that Pusha T song he featured that was just class after after he did Yonkers, and he just shouted out Yonkers about five separate times. (laughs) <laughs> can't even remember what it's called but look up look it up it's great um <clears throat> there's a, obviously there was a lot of debate as you say about this being his coming out album um how do we frame his history of homophobia within this co- uh, conversation um i mean the, vi- the 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 vile comment about tegan and sierra as you said is, is was disgusting um and it is like uh, introspection from a nefarious narcissist. So maybe this is we're getting to this stage of woke hip hop. Maybe that's maybe that's the era where the epoch we're entering. Um, I mean, it's not just his emotional maturity. It's it's also his productive maturity. Um, he he's always completely made his own beats, kind mm. of from scratch, yeah. anal- using analog instruments, and he's very talented at yeah. that. And on this, his talent really blossoms. Yeah. Um, it's like I, I ain't got time as there's a real real sort of craftsmanship there um, it's a, like a master class in sample foregrounding um, he, the, he samples uh, Introduction to Belly Dancing um, which is also used in I believe Groovers in the Heart the, the opening of Groovers in the Heart um, it's the same with the 9-11 song as well with Frank um it's, what what and what's interesting about this production and always doing there is that he's not sacrificed his maximalism, um, his brashness or his wryness. It's just developed and he's just added like that. It's become more textured and less offensive and a lot more open-minded. Um, you know, there's a lot more sympathy and con- contentment there. Uh, so yeah, that is a very accomplished record and it's one of the best raps albums of the year so far. And really fun. Yeah, and yeah. just doing stupid things like he used to do the thing on um, uh, maybe it was the one before Wolf Goblin where he had the camp counselor kind of that framed the framed the album and he kept coming back to the, his discussion with the camp counselor he does that less now which is good because that kind of became a drag after a while but he's got the radio kind of thing that you know Queens of the Stone Age did it on Songs for the Deaf 
mm-hmm. the kind of tuning in and out of radio stations, and it sounds good. And the sequencing is brilliant. Like he's he's meshed it all together into one long form kind of piece. Mm. Uh, and there's some funny bits in it, like going from boredom, a song called Boredom, uh, straight into a song called I Don't Got Time. <laughs> it's great. Uh, his there's quite a few features on it and he lets them shine like mm. the one the Estelle feature Garden Sheds it's basically an Estelle song for two thirds of its runtime, and then Tyler comes in for about the last 45 seconds but it works really well Frank Ocean's couple of uh, features are really good uh, yeah and Flower Boy is definitely worth checking out I think we both agree yeah yeah definitely if, if, if we didn't review it did we in the end no sadly not no what, what would you have given up uh, probably eight and a half or eight. Yeah, yeah, that's probably what I was. I was feeling as well. Like a high, a high eight, low eight point five. Yeah, this if, is we got, if, we, if I was going pitchfork, I would have gone best new music eight point three. Just cut in. We need to go to hundred point scale. It is the yeah. optimum. I, th- I think. I think you know we're we're being we're being self indulgent enough. With us, uh, I feel that we've got nothing to lose from it. For sure. I ain't got time for these niggas. Better throw a watch at the door. I have my boys in this bitch looking like a seminar. Who the fuck talking to, motherfucker, boy? I ain't got time for these bitches. Better throw a clock at these hoes. Had these hoes in this bitch looking for a water hose. Who the fuck talking to, motherfucker, boy? I ain't got time. <laughs> boy, I need a Kleenex. How I got this far, boy? I can't believe it. That I got this car, so I take the scenic. Passenger walk, boy, I look like River Phoenix. First. Happy birthday! The next, uh, the next big album we want isn't isn't technically an album. It's a mix, and um, we also want to talk because we actually went to the launch party for this at Fabric uh, Daphne's Fabric ninety three. Fabric Live ninety three, yeah. yeah. And although it's a mix and not an album, it is probably closer to an album than most entries into the Fabric Live Fit series because twenty three of the twenty seven tracks in it are brand new Daphne productions, which is the first thing that uh, Dan Snake has put out as Daphne for quite a while so that's exciting on that front mm. but we were, we both wrote about him after we went to see his five hour set at Fabric last Friday which was a hell of a lot of fun and we stayed on the dance floor for the whole five hours yeah. and his, his ability is to just move the sound around and take you places for like ten minutes from any point you have no idea where you'll be ten minutes later uh, he just he just keeps it going without ever losing a step or or beat or anything. And his mix is the same. It's just like I wish there was more uh, curation, more choices of mm. songs from other artists. There are like four really well selected songs, and the, when they come in, they kind of add a little bit of a zip to the kind of the mix. Because even though there's a lot of variation amongst the Daphne songs it still all kind of works together as one cohesive whole it doesn't necessarily feel like a uh like a curated mix like he does on the dance floor um i mean i suppose in the five hour set that we saw at fabric he played two of my favorite fortet songs uh pyramid and pinnacles and they're both like eight minutes each and he allowed them both to run out in full i think did you play pyramid? yeah he played pyramid and pinnacles uh and obviously he's not gonna he's not gonna let eight minutes of uh, someone else's song run in a 77 minute mix so he's obviously created a lot of his own mini tracks to fill in the spaces and get him from place to place as he needs so it is a really fun and interesting listen uh what do you think about it yeah um so i i, I reviewed the uh the actual night for data transmission rather than the mix um but 
the, the mix itself is very interesting. Um, I find it's it's a bit of a derivation rather than a continuation from Jao Long's 2012 record, which I think is only official studio production. As um, Daphne. Yeah, as Daphne. Uh, he's also known as Caribou for those those people who are. Um, um, yeah, and then it's, what's very interesting about it is that it maybe goes more along the house and garage um, sensibilities, whereas in Jao Long it was very uh, divergent. Um, it was nitpicking from uh, South Indian drums, like they've got electric le- electro sitars and um, the Ninoya, the a very a notoriously rare seven inch um, he used, and he played that in the set as well. And you know, it's but th- there's a lot of great stuff on the new mix. But as you say, it's um, it would be it would have been more interesting to have maybe more remixes in there. But there are some real highlights, like Face to Face is an absolute banger. And the same vein of like, yes, I know, where he combines R&B, um, n- new, new disco with um, a very sort of st- like strong techno bass. Um, and then Hey Drum is one of the best techno songs I've heard this year. It just, it, well, it, it bangs very, very hard around that central, that central conceit. And um, it it goes off in directions you don't really expect before coming round into this absolute phenomenal outro as it leads into a Luther Davis group um, twist. And I think it's round about the middle point of the album, and it's like that that full um, ten minutes is one of the highlights from dance music this year. In my yeah, opinion. I highlighted that specific part in my review of the mix, the part where it goes from Hey Drum into You Can Be a Star, his edit of the Luther Blissett group. Luther Davis group, not Luther Blissett, uh, <laughs> Luther Davis group song, and then into a song called Try that he's made. And it's just that really, um, that's the moment on the album that most evokes the wild and transcendental moments of his actual DJ sets mm. that you experience when you go and see him play, which I would recommend you do. Yeah. Either as Caribou or as Daphne, he's always, he's, he's, he knows how to cultivate a good time. Yeah. Um, well, me, me, me and Rob were, were floating with the idea of going up to the Warehouse Project this this point in September, and we just, I've I can't remember which date it is. Maybe in, maybe in the thirtieth, where um, Floating Points has curated Fortet, Daph, Daphne, uh, Ma, uh, Madlib, just this absolutely pinnacle of of producers that I'm I'd, I'd be desperate to see him again. So come come along if you fancy a nice little road trip. Um, yeah, Especially any, any, if you're driving. Yeah, yeah, because uh, I can't go. Not in the country, so Kieran needs a ride. I do need a ride. Um, I've, yeah, have you any, any final thoughts on the, the Daphne mix or at all? Uh, search it out. And the next one on the Fabric Live mix you said is Midland, right? Uh, yeah, which yeah. is going to be awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and cover that, which will be interesting because it's also the same day LCD Sound System are playing Alexandra Palace, so that could be a very long twelve hours of dancing. I end up doing from uh from seven to seven. Um, but I'm sure that'll be fun and it's always good cardio so I can't complain
so we're going to move on to like um, the other album section of list albums that we meet, which either we enjoyed but felt they weren't as substantive as others, or albums that were big but we did not necessarily enjoy that much. Uh, we'll start off with Waxahachie's Out in the Storm. The fourth album from Waxahachie, who I th- thought was getting progressively better through her first three up to Ivy Trip, which I absolutely love, and I love Cerulean Salt up before that. Out in the Storm is got some really good songs in it but somehow just doesn't quite make me go back and replay as much as ivy trip did i i listened to ivy trip so so many times out in the storm became kind of forgettable after a handful of listens there are some really good songs like recite remorse and brass beam i really like both of those um her sound is it doesn't seem as cutting this time even though the lyrics in isolation are just as uh, pointed as ever it feels like she's got a bigger studio kind of sound that kind of blunts her her edges a little bit what do you think um yeah i actually initially i was uh a bit down on it as i initially i was a bit down on it as well as as you sort of um suggested but it's actually growing on me quite a bit the more i listen to it um after Ivory Trip was it was a very as you say a huge leap forward instrumentally it was very interesting this one seems like spared back a bit um, a bit more intimate um, but I feel it's like marginal slightness is redeemed by the strengths of the songwriting and the bite of her lyrics she regardless of what she does she will always still be a very talented songwriter and I think that comes through a lot um, and there's still some great songs on here um and it's worth checking out and if you're into that sort of scrappy indie rock scene if you've not heard much waxahachie before um if you but yeah I'd, um i don't know if you haven't heard waxahachie before i'd suggest starting with ivy trip but yeah. if you this comes across your desk you know somehow because yeah. albums come across people's desks these days that's yeah. the thing that happens then listen to it yeah check check out our top hits on spotify and if, yeah that's what most people do yeah um, moving on, we have Manchester Orchestra, a black mile to the surface. Um, this is a very interesting band, Celebration Rock with Stephen Hyden. They um, they spoke to him uh, last week, I believe. Um, Andy Hull. Andy so. Hull, yeah, great name. He and they're on Comedy Bang Bang this week, which is my oh, favorite. Podcast. Fantastic, yeah. yeah. I'll have to check that out. Um, they they've always been like a very they they sort of were a sideline, uh, like a corollary of third wave emo, um, but also more approaching some hardcore textures and stuff. They were they were quite indefinable in a way. They didn't really belong to any particular sound or movement. Um, uh, but they were like they were always very strong, and they were all driven by by far their biggest asset, which is Andy Hull's voice, which I genuinely think is one of the best voices in music. Period regardless of what genre they're associated with. Um, um, again, Black Mountain Surface is very different from the older stuff. It's not as hard. Um, it's, it's very earnest. Um, and it's even more it's folkish in a lot of its ways. It's, there's a lot of um, um, like low, low points. Um, not not in terms of like uh, as, as a critic, but in terms of very spare, spare and minimalistic which I didn't expect before it uproars into into bombast um, it's very technically refined but so emotive and primal at the same time um, very tight I think people are going to love it or be completely indifferent to it I think it's going to be a very divisive album in the end I really enjoyed it um, you know it's like it's a, and 
what I actually reminded me of is Fleet Foxes a lot of the time. A lot of the way it weaved and meandered was like a Fleet Foxes song. And a lot of the, 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 the you know, the swelling up rise and everything like that was quite reminiscent of, um, especially or the, the Sweet Fleet Foxes, helpless, uh, the Helplessness Blues, the way it sort of swings back and forth. Um, I, I, I like it and um, yeah, I'm good. happy with it. They did the uh, Andy Harland co-writer, co-leader, Robert McDowell, did the soundtrack for Swiss Army Man last year, I think, and that they had to do it entirely with their voices, and that they said that that was a big influence on this album, like thinking about how they could make powerful moments Mm. with less. I mean, there's still lots of big rock anthems on this, but there's also a lot of quiet acoustic songs Mm. as well. And yeah, the ebb and flow of it is an interesting, interesting that you compare it to Fleet Foxes because you don't want people to get the impression that it's full of flutes and woodwinds and things like that. But yeah, in the kind of ebb and flow and the way that it's pieced together, the way it builds and subsides, I can totally see where you're coming from. Um, I don't know if it's as good as some of their previous albums, mm. but it definitely has some of their best songs. I'd say it's been one of the the best rock albums to come out in the last few weeks. Um, not not maybe not the year, but I'd give it like a solid seven and a half. Um, yeah. Uh, Zach Zach Evans did the review for it, and he was made. He was quite he was quite good on it. So check 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 that out. He was he was very made some good points on the four or five. Exactly. I want to mention Claude Speed, Infinity Ultra. I did mention this briefly last episode. This uh, Scottish producer living in Berlin bringing out an album on Planet Mew. Uh, I got to speak to him for the 405 all about it, and he told me all about Infinity Ultra, which is this kind of uh, weird sound-mashing, distorted, uh, electronic, uh, psycho, uh, (laughs) psychotropic, journey into electronic soundscapes uh reminiscent of you know rift zero one of tricks point never um some songs are a bit like boards of canada on downers mm. um in the past he's brought out albums that have been a little bit more dance oriented but he said that this is the album he's always been trying to make and he said that he had a, a, a shed load of songs and he just didn't know how to kind of corral them into an album so he had some help with it and he's come out with infinity ultra which is like an hour-long opus of different um palettes of interesting big blocky electronic sounds that to get lost in it's a very experiential album that i would suggest putting on loud on headphones or on good speakers uh, what do you think about it? Yeah, I agree. Um, I've got not that much to add, despite the fact he's he's living my literal dream of being a Glaswegian in Berlin. Um, maybe maybe one day. Uh, I just say it's very. Like, there's a lot of interesting textures there. I'd only heard some of his stuff previously, and it is a lot more laid back, a lot more probing than anything he's done in the past. We should say that's Claude Speed. Speed yeah. with three E's. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I quite enjoy the way it drifts from contemplative like pseudo ambience in a way. It almost yeah. becomes that sort of um, that really pleasant, music, very interesting music, and then before it goes into sort of more firmer techno electro contours. Um, net uh, anything else to add or just check it out.
the next one is a great grandpa's album, Plastic Cough. Um, I haven't had a chance to check this out, so I'm learning just as much as you listeners. Okay, well, again, this is um, I I found these out thanks to the those those great lads are the the alternative one of the other websites I write for. Um, just very briefly, it's in line with the likes of Charlie Bliss, Diet Sig, uh, other scrappy Ernest Indie Rock. Not too dissimilar from Waxahachie either. Um, very fun with some moments of personal poignancy. Solid seven seven point five record. Um, very enjoyable. Check it out. Great grandpa, plastic cough. Um, the next one is one you're big on as well. Yeah, your review will be up by the time this podcast comes out. Yeah, I I really really like this album. Um, it's a this artist. She's called uh, Lush Loss. Um, uh, Olivia. Um, the 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 album is split into two and split in twain. Uh, asking bearing. Uh, the first half of the album is um very unsure of herself, very unstable, but in a very like moving way, and it's spliced with uh, a Skype conversation with her Korean mother. Um, it's it's really, really moving. What I felt was very, very moving. And then the second half is bearing where she becomes more confident in herself, more confident in her identity. There's so much to unpack here um, thematically. It's about family, identity, meaning... Um, and but also about like intergenerational guilt and intergenerational trauma, how that translates across, and how you find connection and sort of supersede that into a place of contentment and ease with your family. Um, there's a lot about the immigrant experience, a lot about um, as a transgender woman. There's a lot about um, becoming like overcoming, you know, like social oppression on your 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 consideration of your own identity. Um, and it's it's not just really moving lyrically. Like the production, I think, is fantastic. It's reminiscent of Baths and Gripper and a lot of Frank Ocean there as well. And how much you can how much you can mine from Sarsity. So I I absolutely loved it. I've given it a eight point five. Um, yeah. What well, well, you were a bit more hesitant on this record. I like the music itself a lot, and as you say, it's very redolent of Baths with its you know its emotional core and uh, glitchy beats. It's just that Skype conversation with her mother. It's very earnest, and they talk about things like her her mother's father's death, and it would be fine, but it's just like a minute and a half at the end of every song in the first on the asking half. And it's just too long. I, I mean, the tr- it, if it was like 20 seconds, that would be fine. But it's at least a minute on the end of every song is a Skype, is part of this Skype conversation, which is quite heavy. And you don't want to hear that every time. If she'd cut those parts into individual tracks so you could skip them, then that would be good too. But, you know, I mean, putting that aside, the music itself is really worth checking out. And especially if you're a Baths fan, I definitely get a lot of that kind of vibe out of it. Yeah, and uh, I think it, was, it did really help that it was such like a moving record, and I, I started listening to it while I was in the the process of um, just uh, finishing up and editing my Arcade Fire review for Everything Now. Um, Brutal, savage, unnecessary. Just some of the words I've heard attributed to your review of. Everything now by Arcade Fire. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite, I'm quite, chill, I'm quite chuffed with that. I've had people come, uh, quite a few people come back saying they really agreed and um, disappointedly so as as they were. Um, the best, the best, and sort of hard was I, I sound like a jilted lover, which I, I 
I actually really want to endorse. I I feel like a jilted lover after that uh, after that record. I was felt so let down. Um, basically, for my review, I gave a two, uh, two out of ten. Um, I know there's absolutely nothing interesting there. It's actually. I'm, I'm glad we talked about Arcade Fire in a positive light on the last yeah. episode, so you got to know how much we really do love this band. Mm. So that you know we're not doing this from an uh, from the point of view of like people who've always had a problem with Arcade Fire having their heyday when they brought out about out. We're actually genuinely genuinely disappointed about yeah. everything now. Yeah, I, it's it's. <laughs> They, they and to my mind, they've become the thing they once hated. They've once become this cynical, um, mean-spirited group that that was the complete antithetical to what they represented on Funeral and the Suburbs and albums like that. Um, there's and it's not just as as well as the musically. There's nothing interesting there. Um, is and they they tried to go for abrasion. They tried to go for like a punky spirit where they just f- fail spectacularly, and it's really just like quite unlistenable it's quite difficult to hear it um it's also the lyrically it's just like you know someone who's just discovered Bukowski at, at school and he's just telling on or, or bell and he's like going on about oh technology is evil internet is bad off you go you have a facebook account oh you're you're you're, you're a social husk um it's just it's just really em- empty and i don't know whether i'm still i'm still like part of me is wondering whether Everything now is uh, inte- deliberately a parody of themselves. I know, right? It's just, it's like there's at least, how many of them in the band? Six or seven? Yeah. And they all signed off on this album, On signed off on putting in two songs called Infinite Content, where the entirety of the lyrics are infinite conf- on content, we are infinitely content just repeated over oh, and over God. two songs back to back in the middle a song called chemistry where the hook is you and me we got chemistry as yeah. if they've never as if that's never been used in any song before oh and that, don't get me started on signs of life just like that is oh there's no signs of life here or that. <laughs> that song actually has a decent groove but then once wind starts rapping the days of the oh. week it's just like all seven of you in this room can look each other in the eye after allowing that to be recorded to tape and put out to the world. What is going on? And uh, yeah, one thing that you pointed out in your review is they're returning to suicide yeah. of their fans on this, which is really weird and badly misjudged. Mm. I was, yeah, I, was, I think that's when it becomes a, it stops being a bad record and becomes a really tasteless album. Um, when the whole thing, it's like playing casually with suicide as a topic but it's also like it's saying oh you have casual sex you're soulless oh you 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 um care about your image you care about you post selfies onto the internet you're soulless it's, it's a very mean-spirited very vindictive record that is just really dislikable and i i i don't know there's 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 been so much great music this year about self-empowerment about the individual ex- expression and this just this just feels like it's, I really hope that this album doesn't overshadow all those other ones that are completely uh, the antidote to what the Arcade Fire are seeing here. And you were talking earlier about um, you were wondering those Arcade Fire hardcore fan base. What will they make of this album? Will they go with it just because they love Arcade Fire so much? That, that I will be curious for. But I was chatting to a guy on Twitter today who. He's bought tickets to see them live and everything. They're one of his favorite bands, um, and he absolutely despises this record. Um, he he was saying that he, he agreed quite a lot with everything, and he doesn't know what he's gonna. Do. He's still gonna see them live, but he's not sure 
what his response is to be. So I am very curious to see what the long term context will be with Arcade Fire's fan base. I can imagine some form of a split or some degree of disenchantment with them. Um, I feel like they've become Morrissey to an extent and that the the earnest, yearning, sincere indie rock saviors become, you know, Mr. Hyde. They become the thing they despise. Um, do you have any final thoughts on it? No, just that we're very disappointed in you, Arcade Fire. <laughs> We're not angry. We're just disappointed. I think you got a little bit angry. I'm, 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 I'm furious. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on to the next album. Yeah, um, check check out my review if you if you want to see me just spurge the lowest out. score on Metacritic. Congratulations on that. Well, I've I've looked look at me, mum. I finally made it. Um, so the last the last album we're going to talk about um this week is Lana Del Rey's Lust for Life. What do you think? I've always been an LDR skeptic. I've never really been able to get into her albums. I mean, this one is the same. It it sounds fine, and it's got a, a dreaminess to it. I mean, it is reminiscent of Beach House, who's another band I always had a hard time going getting on with, but I've kind of come to it like quite a lot. But with Lana, I don't know, this whole self-mythologizing, this whole Hollywood femme fatale thing, it just seems so fake it has done from the beginning to me and um i get that people get swept up in this kind of persona that she's putting on but it just doesn't have any effect on me and her voice while technically good it just kind of switches me off and that becomes clear on this album when she has a track uh duetting with stevie nicks and Stevie Nicks' voice comes on and it's just like there's so much more depth and richness to her voice that makes me actually want to sit up and listen to it. Whereas Lana's, it's not off key or anything. It's perfectly fine, but it puts me to sleep. I don't know what it is. It's kind of hard to explain. What do you think? Well, it's unfair comparing to Stevie Nicks considering Stevie Nicks is one of the best musicians of all time. Um, at least pop musicians. Um, I mean, it's a good album. Um it's an improvement on Ultraviolence, which I thought was a disaster. I thought it was a dreadful record. Um, we gave it a glowing review, and um, plenty of other people have declared it's a classic. It seems to be very much in a fine versus love it camp. Um, I'm not quite there, I've always, but I've always found myself more interested by Lana Del Rey's career arc. As you say, the, the makeup of uh, what she represents is fascinating. Um, in in some ways, she's the zenith of musical inauthenticity of uh, conformity, as a like an icon of manufactured stardom because she had the present presentation of being the working class Americana girl, whereas her dad's just an executive somewhere, and it's all been, it's all a very convoluted lie. Um, but all inversely, she also owns that persona. Like she, after at this stage now, which is what I think Lost for Life, um the most interesting thing about it is that this is her accepting that and just trying to marry the lie and the real her to some degree and it's almost like a quasi-feminist grasping of agency um, on the misogynistic um, of the misogynistic uh, impression at the start is now this this sort of uh, feminist revising which I think is quite interesting but it is difficult to discern what is her and what isn't Um, Lust for Life appears like She's as cohesive and it's cogent, um, some interesting production within that traditional mythologized Americana. Um, it's very bloated and 
the opening song, Love Aside, I don't think it has that many highs. I do really like that song. Um, but it's a solid record, in my opinion. But I can't imagine myself revisiting it much at all. No, me neither. Like you called your mother It's a grieving sweet and slower Stop believing it's far from over so, will we move on to the retrospective now? Those were a lot of good albums that came out in the last yeah, few weeks. Yeah, but yeah. now it's time to go even further back in time <laughs> to a time I like to call 2003. Three. When the clientele released their debut album, The Violet Hour. Now, before we get into it, we should do some background for the people who may not be familiar or may be in uproar with me calling the Violet Hour the clientele's debut album because obviously there's Suburban Light beforehand, which is a compilation of their EPs and singles that they'd released up to that point and plays very much like a, a full length and uh, in some quarters is still considered their best release in many ways. Uh, do you have any relationship with Suburban Light? Uh <laughs> Not not particularly. I'm, I'm going to be completely honest. I'm fairly dense on the clientele. Like, uh, I've listened to a few songs, and I had listened to The Violet Hour in full before, but it was a few years ago. So this is this is like me playing catch-up in a lot of ways. Well, that's good. That's why I chose it, because I want people to play catch-up on the clientele before their new album, Music for the Age of Miracles, comes out September 22nd. And it is kind of a surprise one because after 2010's mini album, The Minor Tour, which is when I got into them, I kind of got into them around that because that was coming out and I'd heard a lot about them. Uh, that was the end of the clientele aside from a few random gigs. But the Alistair McLean uh, met a new musical inspiration and they've made a new album called Music for the Age of Miracles which we'll talk about in time but I thought it would be fun to go back to The Violet Hour which is their debut album first time they were thinking about the songs that song cycles on the length of over over uh you know 15 minutes because Alistair McLean has said that he thought that uh two song singles or EPs were their most natural medium in a way which is maybe why Suburban Light somehow feels more complete to some people but to me the violet hour is a perfect introduction to the band um let's talk about the title do you know where it comes from as uh, a scholar of english i i certainly do um so anything extracting from tsl it's the wasteland is all right by me um can i quote the part that it comes from of course you can i've written it down so it's called the violet hour from the wasteland which is hundreds of lines long but this part is where it's mentioned at the violet hour when the eyes and back turn upward from the desk when the human engine want w waits like a taxi throbbing waiting i theresius throw blind throbbing between two lives old man with wrinkled female breasts can see at the violet hour the evening hour that strives homeward and brings the sailor home from the sea and onwards it goes. So what do you think about that as a title? I think it's such a such a, a young student-y kind of choice for a song, for an album title, but it's great. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm very much on, on board with that. I was sort of biologically predisposed to like it. Um, and it, to an extent, it is a concept album about the Violet Tower and what that represents, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if you go through the songs, every single one pretty much mentions light and um, is talks about you know night falling or sun rising most of the time. Uh, it's talking about dusk, mm. um, and that's one of the things I love the most about the clientele is they are a very North London band and I've lived in North London for a long time. I mean, Alison McLean was born in Hampshire, but they formed in North London and have lived here since and make many mentions to London places and, uh, very characteristically London type sounds they make. I, I always associate the clientele with, autumn which is i always feel like north london is in some kind of some kind of autumn as well because we've got so many trees i mean i'm in east london right now but i'm imagining north london and there's always just like leaves of all kinds of colors littering the ground and that's exactly what springs to mind when i listen to the clientele um the vile hour was the last thing they recorded that they self-produced um at this time they were still singing through guitar amps to record their vocals and that sound although it's not very clean and the lyrics don't shine through as much as they do from strange geometry which came afterwards and onwards when they cleaned up their sound and made it much bigger or whatever um a lot of people still like this sound that they had from the vile hour and before which alistair mclean describes as the kind of sound that you you can't turn up too loud because you'll just get hissing (laughs) because it's just that lo-fi um i do like the more hi-fi sound that they got to on strange geometry but then there are certain things certain charms about this lo-fi recording on the vile hour that uh, actually help with the songs do you have any preference about the sound um I I I do really like this um, the the lo-fi aspect for it. I guess in a, quite a few ways it prefigures the likes of Kurt Vile or Mac DeMarco and real estate. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and um, to, also uh, Destroyer and to a certain extent Radio Department. Yeah. Um, it's it's that's part of the intricate strain of indie rock that's so thoughtful and contemplative. Um. I guess they've, since that it's become a fairly established subgenre, so they've proved in their own quiet way quite influential. Um, that breezy stoner rock, and as you say, it's like quite a a London album or a, a city album. Um, it's both very intimate and lost. It's both like interconnected and quite lonely. Uh, I guess uh, before we go like track by track, do you have any any general general things you'd like to make about? Uh, well, just that, yeah, as you say, it's a very city album. As we go through track by track briefly, I'm sure we'll touch upon that many times. So it starts with the title track, The Violet Hour, which is the perfect introduction to the kind of um, ambling, thoughtful lyricism that Alistair McLean brings to these jangly kind of songs. I mean, uh, I've written pretty much a favorite lyric for every track. So The Violet Hour, this is the very first line of the whole album. Terraces that climb like vines towards the moon the five asides the evening intercity lights i see your face each time i close my eyes and then from there this guitar just kind of hits very softly and it's kind of like drifting like immediately pulls you out of that um suburb um, that urban setting around the five asides and the street lamps and takes you into a reverie and it's just like that it's the quintessential uh clientele kind mm. of transformate transformative moment 
So then from the Vile Hour, we're going to Voices in the Mall, which is a really short and sweet album. I mean, obviously, on an, uh, with a band of this, uh, this kind of sound and doing this lo-fi production is obviously going to have a lot a lot of the lyrics are going to do with dreams and memories and blurring the line between those two things and voices in the mall does that uh perfectly i mean you can if you counted the number of times the clientele mentioned parks on <laughs> this albums you'd lose count quickly i mean in this one he mentions evening school rooms in the park which is a very simple line but does for me evoke london walking around london especially in the winter and you see like lit up classrooms in the darkness and the parks that are all you know there's a few huddled figures on benches and stuff um another favorite lyric from this song is the watercolor night has drenched birches and the black canal and there's this kind of watery guitar that goes with it that just really evokes that i mean canals are another very quintessentially north london thing walking mm. around them especially in the autumn time um, so then we come to when you and I were young, which, as you said, uh, it stood out for you. Why was that? I think it's just um, I think the 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 clarity of the guitar was um is very most pointed here. That yeah. first immediately struck, but it's very simple effect and mechanics, and the the winning lullaby lyrics, as you say, is very pastoral in a in a way, very whimsical and wistful, and it's it's, it's very. But, which I think is quite interesting because it almost goes against the grain with TSL. It's poetry, which is a lot grittier, a lot grubbier. Um, so that is just a, a yeah, weird digression. As we we mentioned, that the the production is quite lo-fi, but when they wanted clarity, they could get clarity for sure. And when mm-hmm. you and I were young, they do that. And because sometimes the guitar is more watery or, or muffled, when it does come through crisp and clear, it really has an effect and when you and I were young, obviously, is a song full of nostalgia, and it has that kind of whisking you away feeling. Um, the lyric that I've highlighted from this song is "The radiator's hum rose above the falling leaves," which must be the quietest sound above the quietest sound ever, and just um, it really tells you a lot about the quietness and the the studiousness of the clientele's kind of oeuvre, mm. really. So then comes Missing, which is a very pure love song. Um, I mean, there's very um, cheesy lines like, the first time I saw you, I couldn't say a thing. But then Alistair McLean also goes into lines like, spending time and money doesn't mean a thing. When the moon comes smiling through the trees, when the night has, has come like music to surround you, but you're missing. And as you said, as we said before, that when they really up the production game, you really feel in the middle of their sound and um the line that i just quoted when the night has come like music to surround you the music on missing really does kind of surround you it is kind of like a fireside song that wraps itself around you so i think that's a very wintry uh clientele song that i love house on fire um this one they go extra lo-fi on the vocals but then they, they they become extra sharp when when Alistair McLean kind of really wants to make his point um, and then it fades back 
again it's kind of like a fire in the way that it builds and it, mm. it fades again and he mentions ganton street and soho so every time he mentions something in london i have to point it out there's not as many on this one as on maybe a strange geometry where uh, you have um, losing Harringay, which is absolutely amazing. Um, but we're talking about uh, the Violet Hour. So House on Fire, amazing. Um, he uh, just like that kind of dreamy uh, juxtaposition of House on Fire. I just wanted the cloud, wasn't to watch the clouds go by. I mean, yeah, it, it maybe. Strain, um, the Violet Hour does hit upon the same kind of feelings again and again but it's a very immersive album and that's what a good album does it kind of sucks you in and keeps you in a specific kind of mood um, one other thing that I thought was interesting that Alistair McLean said about the the recording style of the vocals that it's in a pa in a paradoxical way it makes it sound both more dis distinct and intimate to me it's the sound of distance but also the sound of memory it's a very poignant and beautiful sound it's the sound of imaginary spaces so i think that, that he really gets that throughout the violet hour um uh, especially on Porcelain, which is the next song I want to talk about. Everybody's Gone is, I mean, there's a couple of, uh, we mentioned that this is the first time they're doing an album length, so they've kind of broken up with a few more minimal songs or m instrumental songs. But then we come to Porcelain, uh, just such a delicate song. I don't know if this is one of the ones yeah, that stood yeah, out to you. No, yeah, I, I really, really like this song. Yeah, tell me what you um, think about so it. So it's... It reminded me of quite a bit like a Deer Hunter song, actually. Um, it was very, very layered. There's a lot going on here, especially when that, that bass, car, bass guitar acceleration kicks in. It's completely unexpected, yeah. and it's it's so distant with the rest of the record, but it works yeah. really effectively. It's, like, it's almost like a jolt awake, but it works really well. Um, I say it's, it's like it's quite sporadic and fun, but I, I but still retaining that that lo-fi po poesy that it has. Yeah, as you said, it's called porcelain and it has that kind of delicate porcelain feel to it. And then that bass jolt comes along and you suddenly feel like some this porcelain thing you've been holding is kind of getting knocked out of your hands by this sudden bassiness. And then you steady yourself and you go back into the delicacy again. Um, my favorite lyric from this is, All our friends have come to stay. They're laughing in the sunlight where the crisscross fountains play. Such a kind of very dreamlike, uh, heavenly imagery. And uh, the song ends with Still the Evening Will Not Come, which, um, although I've said that the clientele are very quintessentially autumnal sounding band, there's a lot of mentions of summer on this album and it came out in July, so I thought it would be a good time to do it now. And uh, yeah, I think this song really gets that summery feeling, especially with that Still the Evening Will Not Come lyric. <laughs> Then comes Haunted Melody, which uh, is an, another kind of shorter one um, with Alistair McLean's voice is very echoey and faded and you, if they want to evoke that kind of feeling of traveling and a voice kind of from, from a distance. Um, he also mentions another 
London landmark. So he says, empty on a southbound train, I ride through Battersea in glowing rain, I ride. So I had to mention another <laughs> London mention, just because it just makes me love them all are the you, more. Are you, are you keeping tabs, listeners? Have you? Yeah, we should organize a clientele walking tour, beer, beer oh. crawl, bar crawl. That, that'd be good. Can you imagine how many denim jackets would be on that bar, like walking that'd tour? That would be great. It would be pretty disparate. We'd have to go from Battersea to uh, Haringey at least, and that's a long way. <laughs> Um, then uh, we come into towards the end of the album um, and maybe what Alistair McLean said about the single being their most um, their most natural medium really shows itself on these couple of songs long songs that come here first Lamplight which is six minutes and then um, the house always wins which is eight minutes and those two songs alone could have made a great a and b sides mm. uh, but they still sound great as part of the violet hour uh lamplight obviously we mentioned that light is a big deal mm. all the way through the violet hour from the title through the uh, lots of times he's mentioning walking th- around at sunset or dusk or through parks and whatever and um you get that so much through lamplight which uh talks about lights very specifically um and it's a it's kind of a road trip kind of song to me this one um where it kind of goes off into musical kind of noodling and then comes back it mentions we can both drive away laughing friends and silent rides and all the lovers we lost are found again obviously driving kind of i get a kind of image of him driving along with an old friend sharing old memories and i don't know there's something about this one reminds me of it takes me out of london actually and more into a more rural kind of sounds driving through countrysides and things like that what do you think of this one i really like these this two pair um just as like a 15 minute sprawl um i think they flow in quite well there's a lot of um peaks and troughs there that, that work quite well and it's just uh, yeah it's it's a lot smoother than the other ones and it's it's a lot more patient and i i, I quite like it it's it's a nice way to end the album effectively before the actual final yeah, before the actual end so the the six minutes of lamplight um, becomes the house always wins, which is the eight-minute song, which similarly could also be a road trip kind of song. Just another one that's full of nostalgia, and it justifies its eight minutes, you know, kind of ebbing and flowing, and um, just really beautifully unfurling in a way that only the clientele could do. And they would go on to do more things like this as their sound got more hi-fi later on. But there's something about the lo-fi-ness of this one and the way they use it to their advantage that really adds something to it. Um, I really like the lyrics in this. And I remember afternoons inside your mother's house, us skipping school and getting high inside. But I can't think about that anymore. I can't fit my words inside. And then... um, and then they do the most rocking out in the most uh, clientele kind of rocking out you could imagine, which is really restrained, but um, <laughs> relative to the rest of the album, it does actually sound like a moment of catharsis. So that's good. Uh, anything to say about The House Always Wins? It's more just, this, I guess, uh, fairly similar to Lamp. Like yeah, I mean, it's hard not to pair these two together. Yeah. As I said, they would have made a great A and B transition. To be yeah, and then this album ends with Policeman Getting Lost, which is kind of just this two-minute capper, uh, which obviously ties back into the themes of um, light. Uh, the light is dimming. That's one of the main things in this very minimally listed, uh, written song. is about light dimming. And then the very end of the album is a very aside kind of 
uh, observation. He says he saw, he looked into the fog and he saw a policeman getting lost. And that's the end of the album, uh, which I find is a really kind of curious ending. It's a striking image. Yeah. I really like it. Um, and that wraps up The Violet Hour by The Clientele, which I think one of the things I've got to mention at the top is one of the main reasons I want to talk about The Clientele is because they are perpetually underrated. They are like critically loved, but commercially unknown on Wikipedia, their Wikipedia page, which is very short. One of the very few things that it says is they have experienced more success outside of their, uh, the national home of Britain. They're much more popular in America where they put out albums on merge. Mm. And here they are. I'm not even sure the new label's coming out on Tapete or something like that. I've never heard of. Uh, so it's weird. I don't understand why. Because to me, the things that make me love the clientele so much are the Britishness, the the evocation of city life, especially London life. So why is it that they've become more popular in America? Any theory on that? Uh, well, their sound is... Well, I think their lyrical content and maybe their their sense of sarsity is quite um, British. Their sound is very American. It's quite... Um, you know that sort of the, its landscape um, portraiture is quite similar to a lot of American country or American folk music. Um, I guess it's the it's similar to why Bell and Sebastian are really popular in America as well. Is that is that sense of um, maybe quixoticism and esotericism? They're very very wistful and that may be more attuned to that and maybe that's probably why they, they've struggled for some commercial success if um if it was if it was out today and you reviewed it what score would you have given it oh remember we're on a we're on a we're on a decimal scale now we're, oh, we're, we're on a scoring out of 100 yeah like a 84 okay something like that yeah I think that, that's fair. I'd probably, I'd I'd probably be with that as well. I need to. I, I want to really listen to all of the clientele albums, including yeah. the Viara again. I mean, I'd probably say that. I so. love this album, but I think the follow up uh, follow up album to this Strange Geometry is my favorite of this, and the new one coming out in September, uh, the music for the Age of Miracles almost feels like a spiritual successor to Strange Geometry in some mm. ways. Um, but we'll talk about that more when it comes out. To be to be continued. Yeah. So uh, just just very quickly, if you and um, for next next time, uh, I've chosen um, an album a bit further back than Neon Bible and The Violet Hour because we uh, the, with the ten year minimum we've we're going pre twenty first century. Is that what you're saying? We're going pre twenty first century. Oh we're going goodness. all the way back to nineteen eighty five. I wasn't even born yet. No, well, huge, huge if true. Tell uh, us. We're going to be discussing the Tears for Fears albums, Songs from the Big Chair. Very nice. Um, does that include Everybody Wants to Rule the World? Uh, it does include Everybody I Wants to Rule so. the World. That's the only song we know. Well, actually, it arguably contains the three biggest songs in um, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Shout, and Head Over Heels. Um, I, well, actually, excluding 
bad world. Um, but I'm like I think it's time we had a rather comprehensive critical reappraisal of the Tears for Fears because they are quite cynic. They are symptomatic of Mad World and those other like big pop hits. But there's so much to them that I think we. I'm quite excited to discuss next time. All right, so get listening to music from the big. What's it called? Music from the big chair. Music Songs from the big chair. Oh, Songs from the big chair by Tears for Fears for next time's retrospective. And listen to the Violet Hour by the clientele. Yeah, yeah definitely. And um, let us know your let us know your thoughts if you're keen to discuss further. Um, so we'll move on to articles we enjoyed very briefly. I uh, appreciate we're running out, running out of time. Um, the first one of those is a conversation I absolutely adored on Goldflake Paint, uh, written by Maria Sledmeyer. Um, with Phoebe Bridgers, whose album I'm tremendously excited about and I'm really keen to speak to as well. Her album's called Stranger in the Alps and it come, it's her debut coming out on Dead Oceans also on September 22nd. Tell us what's excited you about her so far. Um, what, Phoebe Bridgers? Yeah, um, so and this she, article. So she toured with Conor Burst at the start of this, uh, start of this year and um, her... Like single that just propelled her to fame, which Goldflake Paint right um sort of positioned really quite beautifully. It was called Smoke Signals, which discussed celebrity deaths and um very specific details and her voice and the melody everything. It was very it's a very recent reminiscent of Julian Baker, perhaps but perhaps even more rooted in reality. Not as not as poetic, but maybe more like grittier. Not in a negative sense, but more in a more palpable like physical corporeal sense um it was stunning and then her her new single uh, came out ahead of the album which will be out in september as well and in, in conjunction with that uh, maria spoke to her and it's a really interesting conversation but the main like thing for me is maria's like uh, her prose she's a really terrific writer both very poetic and lyrical but cuts to the crutch of things she's a very incisive writer as well um and it's just a it's a long it's quite it's quite long but it's definitely worth your time it's utterly fascinating as they discuss um phoebe's um like her, her politics her her, her uh, way of thought and also just uh, how she considers things her her approach to music and lyric writing have you had a chance to read it yeah it's a very engrossing read and made me get to know phoebe a lot more and made me very intrigued for her debut album which does feature connor on it as well and mm. she had good stories from meeting and being on tour with connor and yeah as you said uh maria got a lot of interesting opinions out of her that that really expressed who she is and uh hopefully we'll get to hear more of that when her album comes out yeah i'm very excited for that um the, ne- the next one um was on crack it was a uh, artist of interviewing artists between Holly Herndon and Jalen, who, um, if you hadn't heard the first uh, podcast we recorded, her album Black Origami is still my favourite album of 2017 so far. Uh, what did you make of this article? Yeah, it's really interesting to to hear or to see. To, it's always interesting to see two musicians who are also friends talking to each other because they can be more candid with each other or ask more pertinent questions than perhaps an outsider or a layman speaking of, um, who doesn't know about gear and stuff might be able to ask it's mostly just holly interviewing Jalen. it's Jalen talking about her performances and holly talking about the different ways she's seen Jalen perform i was hoping to get a bit more insight about what holly herndon's been up to but there's no nothing on that front but still it's it's interesting to hear 
a bit more about Jalen's uh, how she performs live, how she feels about performing live, how her her songs were kind of uh, for black origami were tracked to a dancer, which I didn't mm. realize, which I found that really interesting. Yeah. It kind of came out of uh, um, watching dancers' movements and working from that, translating it into rhythms, which was really cool. Uh, what did you think? I, I th- yeah, it was, it was very interesting. Um, as you say, like, when they were discussing the enigmatic uh, Av- Avril Stormy Unger, I think is how you pronounce her name, the, the, the person who the dance moves were modelled on. It was also just um, uh, the song, the track 1%, it was the song they collaborated on the record as well. Um, and there's, there's a really good quote from the interview itself, which I, I just re- really keen to share, where she says, where Jalen says, I could really get behind somebody who deals with contemporary Indian dance or modern dance, but I like that she makes it a lot harder for me because I'm having to actually literally either follow her lead or create something where she has to end up following me. It makes it very organic because you can see and sometimes feel the struggle between the two of us. You're getting the vulnerability of her and myself in that moment completely. Um, yeah, I, 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 I really enjoyed this. Yeah, I mean, when you listen to Black Origami and it's quite brash and in your face, you might not, not necessarily think of vulnerability, but it's interesting to know that that is in the, in the, in the creation of it. It's a lot of vulnerability. And the last article we wanted to shout out was on Resident Advisor, uh, Christine Kerr, who actually put together that Jalen and mm. um, uh, Holly Herndon interview for Crack, has done a piece on Resident Advisor about a club in Milan called Macau, which is more than just a club. It's like a a kind of, um, what would you call it, a collective or a, what's the word I'm looking for? Um Anyway, it's yeah. it's like a very it's a, it's a, a cultural hotspot. Yeah, an, an art hub that is yeah. in in threat of being closed down because of you know corrupt political uh, campaigns gone wrong and needing money. And it, uh, she talks about how immersive and unique the experience of going to a club night is there, and the pictures look amazing. And it just makes me want to go there so badly. It sounds like the kind of idealistic uh, convent of the future, like art convent that y- you'd want to know that uh, exists out there where creative people can live in harmony and have truly democratic kind of decisions made and come to agreements about the future and the presentation of their art and their surroundings together in a harmonious kind of way and she really uh, she spent a couple of days there talking to the the not the owners but the people who who run the biggest parties there talking about how they manage everything the pressures that are coming from the government how how they're going to um, deal with this I like the part where they uh, they talk about what to do to because they have a very um, utilitarian I don't know if that's the word very um, utopian. Uh, kind of view where they only charge five euros to get in but they discuss what should happen if someone shows up and they really can't afford the five euros and they say they should still let them in because at the end of the day it's about you know sharing the music and enjoying it and letting art be the main thing which i really respect and i think it's a really interesting article and hopefully that this club doesn't get kicked out because i'd love to go visit it sometime and i think a lot of other art uh organizations could learn a lot from the way that they seem to run their uh run it what do you think i i completely agree it's very interesting very like very historicizing um very content and info heavy 
Um, it's very, it's interesting because at the moment I'm also reading um, the the book last night. A DJ saved my life: the history of the disc jockey, and it's fascinating just reading all these histories of these famous venues and um, these clubs, uh, such as like the Roxy and Studio Fifty Four, places like this, where it's built a soul over time. It's not just it's not just it's not just like a place where people go and dance. It's the absolute pinnacle of human ecstasy. These places. You know, it's it's it really purports the the utopian ideal of nightclubs is the intersection of music, culture, sex, politics, social values, um, uh, uh, utopianism. Um, these places matter, and that this piece is really effective in its historicizing and its demonstration of why it matters. As as Rob says, the the photos are stunning, and just all the the anecdotes, every even the 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 grungiest weirdest nightclub that's just down the road from you will have so so many so much history and so much story to tell um and the piece itself is written beautifully as well she's got she's a very she's a very like very articulate writer um yeah it's a great piece so that's called macau m-a-c-a-o that's the name of the club macau collective activism that's on resident advisor yeah we'll 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 link to the the piece in the the show notes Yeah, just a but cl- closing uh, point away from articles is that um, you were quite keen to discuss Dunkirk and Hans Zimmer's score. Well, you did a little bit of colouring outside the lines on the 405. You went off the music realm and into the film realm and uh, covered yeah. Dunkirk for us. I, I betrayed my principles. And I saw it as well. And, you know, it's just one of those films that everyone's talking about. And I felt like we should mention it. It's maybe from a musical standpoint because Hans Zimmer's score in it is just so integral to what makes it work and it's completely different to what he's done before where i mean you said in your review you weren't a fan of his previous work uh i mean it is very in your face you think of the inset the honking big brash inception uh soundtrack um it kind of works in that film i mm. love that film but it, yeah the way that his very minimalistic tense always seemingly always subtly building uh, clicking, clock ticking, soundtra- mm. uh, like soundtrack for Dunkirk really plays into the tension of the of the film. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I, as I say, I, it's just the best thing he's done. Um, it's always perfectly in tune with the story and the images. Um, it's very sparse and stripped back until it gets to the moment where that Dunkirk wavers with um, sentimentality and sort of patriotic patriotic kitchenness which I felt maybe it's only let down but then again it's also earned it by that point because it has so intense it is so visceral and very very <laughs> accomplished uh, it was, I mean there's there's a lot of um, people who are divided on Christopher Nolan but one thing you can't criticise him for is his craftsmanship um, yeah I, I loved the film I thought it was incredible um, where would and, you place it in Nolan's filmography uh, ranking wise yeah. Um I don't know, I'd have to really think about it. I think my favourite Nolan film is still probably Batman Begins. Wow. 
I I like Batman Begins, obviously. I like all of his films. Yeah. What about what about you? I I I'd probably so I, this I, might I, be my favorite of his. Yeah. It's between this and Inception and The yeah. Dark Knight. Yeah. I, I, oh, and The Prestige. Oh, I love a lot of his films. Yeah. He is he is a he's a good director. He's all right. He's a what well, what well, well, well. I just uh, briefly. What would you? How would you feel about him directing a James Bond film? Um, I mean, I don't feel precious about James Bond at all. I just I would actually feel more precious about why is he wasting his time with that when he could do something original like Dunkirk. Mm. Yeah, fair. Because no matter how much originality you bring to a James Bond is still going to have to meet certain things at the end of the day. Yeah. Like the bad guy's got to lose and the good guy's got to win. And he yeah. did that with Batman already. Yeah. But I would still watch it. Of course I would watch it if he did If he did a Bond. How about you? Uh, yeah, I think it would be interesting but how much like studio, studio and positions would be on there. Like we need at least two car chases. We need at least one prominent protagonist to die. We need two love interests, one of which is a betrayer and one of which is a sincere good dugger. Um Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's, oh, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Uh, any any final thoughts on Dunkirk? Uh, go see it, as yep. if it needs any yep. more of a plug. <laughs> um, I get the, last, the last thing I want to talk about is um, there's a new pavement podcast uh, called Gold Sounds. It's um, it's about the paving that you find on side of roads. Yeah, it is. Yes, <laughs> uh, it's not. It's about the nineties indie rock band Pavement. For if if anyone's a fan of them, and they also discuss like other indie rock stuff as well. So the first episode came out today is two guys. One of one I know it through because one of them is a Celtic fan. And I listen to his Celtic podcast, uh, Chris Gallagher, and um, I just got his mate uh, Mark Edwards on there, and they yeah they just discussed like good music as well another good podcast um they also discussed deer hunters helicopter as well on the on the record so they've got an excellent excellent taste in music so um if you're looking for another music podcast to uh to drown drown your sorrows and or get overly nerdy about very specific musical details then uh i highly recommend gold sounds nice i might check that out though i do have a lot of podcasts on my plate already yeah, there's a lot uh tangential to that um as, as part of their classic album reviews on Sundays, Pitchfork published an amazing review of Silver Jew's American Water yesterday by Mike Powell, which I would recommend everyone goes to listen to. Silver Jew's often touted as a side project of Pavement because mm. Stephen Malcolmus was in it, but it is much more than that. It is David Berman's project, and uh, American Water is an amazing album. And read all about it on Pitchfork. Uh, do you have any shout outs to do before we go? Shout outs. I thought you had to shout out some people. Um shout shout out Caroline. Oh yeah. Uh, so my Oh um, corrections department. Uh, corrections department. Um I got the wrong Taylor Swift song um when I mentioned which Kendrick featured on. So we have we have maintained our, our King Kenny segment by uh, revisiting it in the correction. We haven't mentioned Lord or Corbin there. Um, no. Well, that's well that's something. Okay, so which song, which t- uh, Taylor Swift song is Kendrick on? Um, uh, I've forgotten. Well, this is supposed to be corrections department, um, not point okay. out our mistakes department. Okay, so I apo- apologize to 
apologise to Caroline again. And from my corrections department, I said on the last episode that Hannah Williams and the affirmations Late uh, late Nights and Heartbreaks, which is used as the sample on Jay-Z's 444, mm. the track. I said that that was an old Motown song, but it's actually not. It's from a few years ago. It just sounds like a Motown song. Okay, oh, fair enough. <laughs> um, well, yeah, but we've been, uh, we've been views from the 405. Follow us on Twitter. Yep. At the 405, at no, not that Devlin, at Temporaryism. And tune in again next time. Yep. I'll see you then. Bye.